This is episode 7 of Garner's Greek Mythology. Today we walk with Apollo. He was the embodiment of contradiction. One who healed and one who killed. His legacy would define modern medicine while his plagues would challenge it. Welcome to Garner's Greek Mythology. This is Patrick Garner. I'm a mythologist and the author of three novels. They constitute a trilogy and have one theme, that the ancient Greek gods are here and that they never left. Imagine with me that they were never myths. And this is the premise of my novels about the Greek gods. For the Greeks, this Olympic god Apollo embodied the ideal man. They visualized him in a golden light, of a, a, a vision of perfection, a being as bright as the sun. He encompassed a multitude of concepts. He was the god of prophecy. He presided at Delphi and inspired the famous oracle, the Pythia, who could predict the future. Apollo was also the god of purification and healing, Yet his unerring arrows were tipped with pestilence and infection. Whoever he struck might spread disease to thousands of others. He reflected the conflicted character that all too often defined the ancient Greeks. You see, Apollo was both a healer and the spreader of disease and plague. To understand his character is critical to understanding the Greeks. In episode 6, we talked about Artemis, the twin sister of Apollo. Both were children of Zeus and Leto. Apollo, like his sister Artemis, embodied contradiction. Homer called him Lord of the Silver Bow and Far Shooter. And he had many other names. By far the most common was Phobos Apollo, which meant the Shining One. He was also called Alexkakos Apollo, which in Greek meant the averter of evil. Hertzman called him Nomius Apollo, or he who gathers flocks. But my favorite is one of his oldest. He was Lysias Apollo, which meant Wolf Apollo, as he was believed to protect sheep from wolves. The scholar Jenny March writes, Apollo embodies the values of order and harmony and reason and moderation. As the embodiment of Greek prophecy, the Pythia, the famous oracle whose temple was at Delphi, had 147 sayings carved into the stone above her temple. These became known as the Delphic Maxims and were credited to Apollo. It is from these carvings that we have insight into the mind of the son of Zeus. Two of the most famous, and perhaps you've heard of them, were Know Thyself and Nothing in Excess. When depicted in ancient Greek art, Apollo is always youthful. He frequently holds his golden bow or balances a lyre on his lap. 
A lyre, by the way, was a stringed instrument that looked a bit like a small U-shaped harp. Thus, Apollo became known as the god of music. He famously competed against a woodland deity, Pan. Pan, a half-goat, half-man, was a master of the double pipe. The pipe, or olos, was a wood instrument that looked a lot like a double recorder. It had been invented by Athene, but passed it along to Pan. You may have noticed that a common cultural theme in these stories is bragging. And you must suspect by now that nobody gets away with surpassing the skill level of a god. Whether it's music, weaving, or hunting, these contests always ended poorly for the opponent. In this case, Pan challenged Apollo with his music, but Pan must have quickly sensed that this was a really bad move as he conceded quickly and gracefully. That was the end of it, but when Apollo was challenged another time by a satyr, and by the way, a satyr is a minor god with horse's ears and a tail, it didn't go so well. This guy played the double pipe just like Pan, and during the competition between Apollo and the satyr, both played about the same. So finally, Probably in boredom, Apollo turned his lyre upside down and played it with even greater skill. At that point, the satyr should have applauded like Pan had done and probably fled. But instead, he tried to play the pipe from the other end. Not only did he fail, but Apollo turned out to be a poor winner and the satyr was never seen again. Let's return to Delphi. The oracle, the Pythia, is the famous heroine there. She makes prophecies always while under a trance. The Pythia was reputed to smell the vapors emanating from a fissure under the Delphic temple. The vapors were said to imbue her with Apollo's oracular powers. But of course, the gift of prophecy came directly from Apollo. But before Apollo could establish the Pythia as his oracle, he had to kill a resident snake, a serpent, ancient and massive. Why? Well, it, it wouldn't be an epic tale without at least one supernatural battle. Some said the serpent Pytho was a woman in the form of a dragon. Others said it was a fearsome male. Many believed it was the creation of Gaia's and that it... The snake gave prophecies and would never tolerate competition from Apollo. So Apollo simply killed it with a single arrow. It was said that his victory symbolized the power of light over darkness. In fact, this theme is echoed in endless mythologies. The hero in these myths is usually some ambitious but unsuspected man or woman who against all odds crushes a minotaur or kills a huge monster, destroys a dragon or brings down some corrupt ruler. It's day against night, good against evil. In the Greek mythos, of course, the snake's defeat was inevitable. 
And once the serpent had been vanquished, Apollo was free to establish his shrine. And as the word of Apollo's new temple spread, the Pythia became the most important oracle in Greece. Interestingly, she played a prescribed role, dressing in maiden's clothing and chewing laurel leaves. And by the way, the laurel was Apollo's sacred tree. And by sacred, I mean beloved. In a tragic love story, a girl, Daphne, is turned into a tree. There'll be more about her in a moment. In the Pythia, she thrived for almost 1,200 years. And all over 500 women held the sacred position, one after another voicing the gods' predictions. Her most famous prophecy, one you may have heard of, was telling Oedipus that he would kill his father and marry his mother. And of course it came to pass, however much Oedipus tried to escape his fate. The oracle usually spoke obliquely or in riddles, but her prophecy in 480 BC was unmistakably clear. The Persians had just invaded northern Greece and were moving south toward Athens. In their panic, the Athenians asked the Pythia for advice. Her words were, Now your statues are standing in pouring sweat. They shiver with dread. Black blood drips from the highest rooftops. They have seen the evil. Get out, get out of my sanctum and drown your spirits in woe. She was predicting the sweeping attacks by the Persian king Xerxes that would, in short order, topple Athens itself. Indeed, for the Greeks, Delphi was the center of the world. There lay the famous Imphalos, a stone said to mark the very navel of the earth. Cities would not go to war without the Pythia's concurrence. No important decisions were ever made without consulting her. Every general sent a representative to Delphi before attacking another city. Even Alexander the Great consulted her before crossing into Persia. It's a fascinating story. When she refused to see Alexander, he personally went to her residence and demanded that she answer his question. At first she defied him, but when he dragged her out, she looked up at him and she said, Okay, okay, you, my son, are invincible. Alexander took that as his prophecy and went on to conquer the known world. In time, Delphi grew to become extremely rich. You see, every city or state that declared victory over another would make offerings of thanks. Gold stacked up in the Delphi treasuries, Marvelous statues and competing temples sprung up on its slopes. Apollo had founded it and protected it for over a millennium. But in about 394 AD, the Byzantine emperor Theodosius shut its doors. He was a newly minted Christian pressured by religious zealots. To show his faith, he closed the temple forever. To put this in perspective, Delphi had functioned as the heart of Greece for three to four times longer than any country in Europe has even existed. It operated without interruption for five times longer than the years since America rebelled against England. 
five times longer. No Greek could have imagined its doors ever being closed. And those who raised its foundations and drove the last pithy away from Apollo's sacred mountainside were not the Greeks of old Greece. But that was little consolation. Apollo, like his father Zeus, was constantly attracted to mortal women. Children from their union were frequently gifted with their father's powers. These gifts were invariably either an ability to heal or make prophecies. The most famous child was Asclepius, a son who became a superb healer. For centuries after his death, he was worshipped as a god. Asclepius was raised by the centaur Charon, who was a being with a horse's body and a human's head and torso. That's right, Apollo did not raise his own child. Instead, a half-horse, half-man did. Why? Apollo could not be bothered, and the centaur had played this role before. He'd raised Jason of the Argonauts and trained the celebrated Achilles, the great warrior who fought at Troy. Sharon was considered the wisest of the centaurs. His name meant skilled with hands as well as surgeon. And so it was that he educated Apollo's boy Asclepius and taught him the art of medicine. Eventually, Asclepius had several children of his own who themselves became skilled healers. One of these children was named Hygieia and became the personification of health. Our word hygiene is derived from her name. And oddly, snakes were sacred to Asclepius, which is ironic since his father had to kill a snake to empower the Pythia. But Asclepius's own symbol became a staff with a snake wound around it. It's famous today as it's displayed by physicians throughout the world. Sanctuaries dedicated to Asclepius sprung up across Greece. The most famous was in the Peloponnese. There the sick slept in his temple overnight. If they were lucky, the god came to them in dreams the sick might be cured and even the dead brought back to life. The gods allowed curing mortals of illness, but raising the dead was a sacrilege. Zeus learned of Asclepius bringing a mortal back from the dead, and his punishment immediately killed his grandson using a thunderbolt. <gasps> Apollo was furious at his father. In revenge, he killed the Cyclops who had forged Zeus's lethal lightning bolt. Death followed death. And to put this in context, think about this. This was Zeus killing his grandson in a moment of passion. This was so typical of Greece, and we see this throughout this entire series. Perhaps Asclepius got the final revenge as he was worshipped as a healer and a miracle maker for more than a millennium after his death, regardless of Zeus's petty revenge.
There's another story worth retelling. Aristeus was another son of Apollo, and, and this time with the nymph Kyrene. A Greek lyric poet named Pindar tells about how Apollo met the nymph Kyrene, writing that Apollo fell for Kyrene one day when he encountered her wrestling with and defeating a lion. He asked the same centaur, Sharon, who we spoke about a moment ago, who she was. Sharon teased him and said, Oh, but why do you ask, Lord? You who know the appointed end of all things and all the ways that lead there. You who know how many leaves the earth puts forth in spring. You know how many grains of sand are in the sea. You know all of what will be. This you see clearly, yet you ask me about some girl? The centaur laughed, then predicted Apollo would unite with Kyrene and carry her off in his golden chariot. Their son, Aristeus, inherited Apollo's gifts of prophecy and was later worshipped himself as a god. A tale told in many ancient writings describes his pursuit of a nymph named Daphne. I mentioned earlier that Daphne had turned into a tree. Daphne had sworn to chastity. Her vow led to disaster as she was transformed while trying to protect her virtue. How is she swept into this nightmare? Eros, the Greek love god who was Aphrodite's child, was insulted by a comment Apollo made in passing. Taking revenge, Eros shot Apollo with an arrow that caused him to fall madly in love with Daphne. Compounding the payback, Eros also shot Daphne with an arrow, but its effect on her was to cause her to loathe all thoughts of love. Daphne instantly despised men. She redoubled her vow to remain a virgin and swore to live her life without love's complications. But then, Apollo saw her and, unable to help himself, pursued her through the woods. She ran, swift and sure of herself, yet the god ran faster. Just as Apollo was about to grab her, she cried out to her father, who was a river god. He acted quickly, hoping to camouflage her as a laurel tree. Daphne's limbs began to grow heavy. Her breasts became covered in soft bark. Her hair became leaves and her arms branches. To her shock, her feet suddenly rooted to the ground. Almost nothing was left of the beautiful nymph. Only her radiance remained. Even still, Apollo loved her. Eros's poison was blinding. Apollo kissed the wood and embraced the branches. Yet he sensed that, even changed as she was, she shrank from his touch. Knowing she was lost, Apollo said, Since you will never be my lover, I will honor you as my tree. The laurel will forevermore make up my bow and be the body of my lyre. Your leaves will never fade or fall like other trees. So it was that a laurel crown became the prize at the Pythian Games, which Apollo sponsored. The prestige of these contests was equal to that of the Olympic Games. And as an aside, today, 
The crown the winners of the Boston Marathon wear is the laurel. But Apollo had lost the girl, and Daphne had lost her life. Then there's the story of Cassandra, a prophetess who most famously warned the Trojans not to accept the Trojan horse. They ignored her advice, and Troy was toppled by the Greeks. Yes, Apollo is in the background here as well. Cassandra's fate was to never be believed, no matter how accurate her prophecies. It was her burden to know the truth about the future, but have no one else ever believe her. But why? Apollo had given Cassandra prophetic powers, but in exchange he demanded sexual favors. After Cassandra felt the oracular powers radiate through her, she broke her promise and rejected him. Astonished that a mortal would dare spurn an Olympic god, Apollo condemned her to never being believed. Repeatedly, Cassandra warned her people about inclement events, and repeatedly she was mocked. Apollo had kept his word, Cassandra had not. After the Romans conquered Greece, Apollo grew in fame. He was revered by the Roman Senate. Many military leaders sought his prophecies and blessings. Caesar Augustus, in the last century before Christ, adopted Apollo and his sister Artemis, who was now called Diana, as his patron gods. Why would he reach back to the old Greek pantheon? Well, remember, the Delphic Oracle would remain extremely important to leaders throughout the region for another 450 years. In the Pythia, the the Oracle was Apollo's voice. In addition, if the Roman Emperor could co-opt Apollo and claim his protection, he might assume the mantle of divinity himself. Even better, because Apollo is the god of healing, Augustus could enlist the god to heal the Roman Empire itself, which was under stress from multiple invasions. So in 37 BC, this Caesar added Apollo to the Roman coinage. The emperor also started rumors that he, Caesar, was Apollo's son. Caesar Augustus made ostentatious donations to Apollo's temple in Rome, and subsequent imperial leaders following his example made a show of their obeisance to the glorious god. In many ways, at least for the Romans, Apollo eclipsed his father Zeus. Apollo became the sun god and a refuge from the pandemics that swept the empire. For another half a millennium, almost until 400 AD, Apollo, however reluctantly, played the game. His sister Artemis had long abandoned the pretense. But the end was near. In 362, the Emperor Julius, who you may have heard called Julius the Apostate, sent an emissary to Delphi to seek the oracle's aid. Julius had thought to revive the pagan beliefs. 
In response, the Pythia said, Tell the emperor that the cavern wall has fallen in decay. Apollo has no temple left, no prophesying bay, and no talking stream. The stream is dry that had so much to say. And so with this flourish, Apollo declared his finish. By the turn of the century, Theodosius would close Apollo's temples, destroy the statues, and burn the ancient groves. But before then, Apollo, the, the god of prophecy who had foretold his own demise, had vanished. Like his sister, he uncoupled from it all. The countless years of adulation had ended. The mighty god Apollo hid his radiance and his frighteningly blue eyes and left Olympia for good. In our next podcast, we'll discuss Poseidon, the alternately glorious, then violently tempestuous sea god, Zeus's brother, the so-called Earth Shaker. Be sure to visit patrickgarnerbooks.com or find me on Amazon. My three novels are set in today's world and feature Greek gods who meddle and maneuver as they always have.